Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, we're talking with Marseille Allen. Raised on Detroit's west side, Ms. Allen always saw community service as a part of life, an example set by her parents, who were both youth missionaries. So it was no surprise to friends and family when she selected Wellesley College in Massachusetts after graduating from high school. The college has a belief that every woman can and should make a meaningful contribution to her world. Marseille is a true example of a college's being a transformative force in the lives of women around the globe. After graduating, Marseille served as the assistant to the majority council for the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee under the late Senator Edward M. Kennedy. Subsequent to September 11th, she followed her immediate supervisor to the Center for Community Change and then later relocated to Korea to teach English. Upon her return to the United States, she served as a truancy officer until joining the Michigan Department of Corrections. Marseille moved to Flint, Michigan at what some might consider the worst possible time, shortly before the news of a Flint water crisis broke. She didn't cut and run. Instead, she started delivering water to help residents. She also entered and won $10,000 in a GoFundMe contest for her cause. In 2013, while supervising U.S. military veterans on felony probation, she co-founded the Oakland County Combat Veterans Treatment Court, one of two combat-only courts in the country. Later, she founded the Warriors Trust Fund, a nonprofit agency developed to provide support, guidance, and financial assistance for participants in the Oakland County Combat Veterans Treatment Court. Marseille is a member of a board of directors for the Veterans Support Foundation and Pretty Hearts and serves on the Fund Development Committee for the Shelter of Flint. She carries Wellesley's motto, not to be served, but to serve, with her every day and has made a commitment to better her community and the world. Marseille, thank you for joining us today. We're happy to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, I'm telling you, it's like I'm often, someone said that this show is often about making connections. And one of our prior guests was at a program where you were receiving an award. And Karen (laughs) called, I mean, and Karen called and she said, you know, I think I saw someone that you need to talk to. And um, she talked about how, you know, 
there's just something about you were there, you received the award, you went on, and she said, but this sounds like, like really important. So, of course, you know, I did my diving in, and I'm going like, you know, I often say, you know, for a moment people want to talk like Flint as the flavor of the month. I mean, it will always have that as being that epicenter, but people don't talk about what's happening with Flint long term, and you're right there. But in talking to you, one of the things that you said is like, you grew up where community service wasn't just an afterthought. It was part of your whole family experience. Can you tell us a little about how that happened? What was that like? Um, we, we had the community house. Um, we had the basketball court uh, next to a neighbor who had a basketball court. And so the, while the adults were playing basketball over there, the kids came over to my house, and my parents made sure that uh, everyone was well taken care of. Um, I, again, my, my parents were missionaries um, in the church, and we um, to, 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 took children on trips uh, when normally they wouldn't uh, be able to go on trips. So um, I grew up in an environment where community service and, and being of service to people was very important. Uh, throughout high school, we always volunteered. My parents, uh, my, my father served as a coach for several basketball teams, including my own, and um, then I selected to go to Wellesley, and I went early decision. And one thing about Wellesley, and, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but Wellesley is the alma mater also of Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright. But mm-hmm. one thing that we, are, we were told is that, you know, you can be these brilliant, powerful women, uh, but you, you have to give back to your community. You, you, there, you have to serve people. And, um, and that, that is part of who you are, and that, that has become part of who I am in, in everyday life. In high school and stuff, you know, and, you know, everybody is thinking about college and stuff. You chose this college, and you got that, that early letter. Did you feel, I mean, did, did you, how were you, but were you like a regular kid, or did people go like, oh, you know, they're, they're that family, and of course you're going to do that. What was your long, I mean, what did you see, I'm going to go to college, and then I'm going to be what? I didn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh-huh. You know, it was, I was playing basketball. I had scholarship offers to other schools, but Wellesley being um, athletically a Division three school, it didn't offer athletic scholarships. So uh, for me, the decision was strictly about academics. It was strictly mm-hmm. um, about putting myself in the best position possible, whether I played basketball or not. Uh, and I ended up not playing basketball, but being a student assistant to the basketball team. So I wanted to. I, I, I also wanted to again put myself um, in a position where I knew that after graduation, I could be anything I wanted to be. And Wellesley has a very strong alumni uh, club, uh, practically in every major city, and so. Even throughout college, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I had no idea. I was literally uh, going to wing it. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. interested in, in math and science. Um, I was interested in travel. And, but I also knew that at some point I would maybe want to teach. But I, I, didn't have, I didn't feel the pressure of having to select a career because I knew that 
at some point when I did decide I would on what I wanted to do, I would be fully supported. So I, I, I did not figure out what I want, wanted to do until I got out of college and probably a few years even after that. Now, I knew Hillary Rodham Clinton had gone to gone there, but I didn't know about Madeline, Madeline Albright. Did, did you know these women had been there, and what were some of the women and uh, academic successes that you'd seen about that really pulled your attention to this to Wellesley? Well, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know that either one of them had gone there when – I selected the school. I think my parents knew, but it just never came up in, in conversation. Um, you, you know, while I was there, academically, it was extremely challenging. Um, but when you're in an, a single-gender environment, so wealthy is all women, um, mm. there tends to be a different level of support. Uh, and I received extraordinary support, not only from the administration, but my professors and of course for my sisters as well so for me it was it was being nurtured while still being challenged I felt spoiled but I felt like you know this was the hardest time period in my life <laughs> because mm-hmm. the academics were just ridiculous um but no I I, I felt challenged and and it, it ended up being the best experience of my life because even today I still continue to have the support of those women. I, I didn't know Hillary, um, but she certainly called me out uh, during her campaign as, as being someone <laughs> she was proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she tweeted about our campaign. Um, there's a, if you go back on her Twitter feed, I want to say it was sometime in February or March of last year. She, she posted an article uh, that our well, that the Wellesley magazine had written about, um, about me and about the women from Wellesley who had come out and helped deliver water with me. And so throughout my life, after graduation, I would say, I have had unconditional support from my Wellesley mm-hmm. sisters. And as a matter of fact, when I started the GoFundMe page, the first person to donate to my uh, GoFundMe for Flint was a Wellesley woman. So, you know, while I could have gone to school and played basketball. I could have gone to a school that wasn't as challenging. And, you know, I was one of thousands of kids, um, maybe even, you know, one of maybe two or 300 in the classroom. I went to a school where I was one of 16 at the most (laughs) in a classroom where I was constantly challenged but continuously nurtured. And I graduated into a sisterhood uh, that reaches the four corners of the globe. And I've always felt some security in that. Um, and that's why when I started the GoFundMe campaign, um, I, I didn't know how much money I would raise. I just wanted enough to buy some water and to make my dent and to be able to help people. Um, but my wealthy sisters took it to a whole different level. <laughs> and so I kind of mm-hmm, had to mm-hmm. say, okay, well, let me <laughs> figure out what I'm going to do with this because – well, my first goal was was a thousand dollars. I ended up raising almost sixty one, or a little bit over sixty one, and mm-hmm. so um, and and, a, and I would say ninety nine percent of that had to do with my Wellesley network. So, you know, I, I made a hard decision at eighteen. Um, although I think my parents made it for me, they just wanted to see what I was going to say, um, mm-hmm. and and it's it's been with me every day since that time. 
Now, you know, I had talked to uh, another woman who was from Michigan, who was from the Detroit area, uh, Cheryl Gilliam, and she was saying that, you know, now she used sports got her into college, but she was saying that in college it helped her recognize that broader world because, you know, like she said, she was used to southwest Detroit. And suddenly here she was in college and she was meeting different people and going places, uh, but she said it also helped her define the person she was going to be. And she found role models who helped her become the professional person that she is now. When you got there and here, you know, you're 18, you're from Detroit, I mean, and you went to Massachusetts, was there a, did you have a moment of adjusting culturally? And were there people there who sort of said, you know, I mean, I know, College can be like really tough, and those that can be really difficult in your way. Who sort of said, "But you can do this." I, I mean, did. Any- I, 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 we have um, at the time, Ethos was mm-hmm. the only closed black student organization in the country, and Rachel was our advisor, and uh, she. Um, was always there for us. She was always pushing us, and unfortunately, um, I want to say maybe two or three years after I graduated, Rachel died very young of cancer. Um, mm. But really pushed me. And our and our dean of students, Geneva Walker Johnson. Geneva and I had a very good relationship, uh, even though I ended up being thrust into a leadership role of a campus-wide protest. Um, and Geneva was just always there for me. Um, she was not a Wellesley woman, and I think she got a lot of heat because of that. But she was uh, very kind-spirited, extremely intelligent, and uh, knew the job, and she knew what she was doing. And uh, we just, uh, as soon as she got on campus, we connected. And I want to say maybe she left a year after I left, maybe two years after I graduated, but... um, Geneva Walker Johnson, who, who's at Old Dominion now, is probably one of the biggest influences during my college career, uh, just being that, that rock for me when I, you know, really wanted to come home. And, and then in mm-hmm. being, being part of that black student organization, um, we, we have a house, Harambe House, uh, that really was the center of our lives while we were there. And... Being from the Midwest, I would build these really huge fires. They would make fun of me because, you know, I, we had a big fireplace that they never really <laughs> used until I got there, and it was like, uh-oh, here she comes with this firewood. And, um, and a lot of the women were from the South or just didn't use fireplaces. So here I am from Detroit with this, you know, a match and uh, some, some, some wood. And so Harambe really was the center of it all for me. And, and it's funny because whenever – I talked to some of my sisters of African descent when we talk about going to Wellesley. There's, the, the campus is gorgeous. I mean, there's not a, a dead spot on it. You can go anywhere on the campus and just feel at ease. But that Harambe house for us was um, our, 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 our new breath when we needed it. And so mm-hmm. I, I still go back to the campus. I still go back to Harambe. I'm a little jealous because they remodeled it and, and it's absolutely gorgeous. But um, I just had a, a circle of women around me of all races um, and, and we circled each other and we protected each other and we loved each other and supported each other. So there was no really one person 
that I could point out that was there for me at the college. I think I was just surrounded by good women who wanted to be successful, who wanted to change the world. And when you're around people like that, that's how you feel. And so we all kind of just took it in stride and just marched to our own beats, but we marched together. And, and for me, that was my college experience. Now, you said you said your parents had sort of already made the decision. And what, what did you did, Were they like sort of pushing you or like, oh, hey, take a look at this? I mean, how did, how did they encourage you but also allow you to make the final decision? They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't encourage me. They didn't say anything about it, if I remember correctly. I think it was just, you know, my dad saying, hey, you know, Wellesley's a really good school. And <laughs> coming, coming, coming from Country Day where sports was huge and going to this small school where sports was not huge, it was, it was for an 18-year-old kid who played basketball her whole life. It was like, oh, I don't know. But it was the one college that I visited. And mm-hmm. I think that was their way of kind of pushing me without saying anything. And I visited the campus, and again, you know, a lot of campuses when you get postcards in the mail or books in the mail with the campus pictures, they're airbrushed. Wellesley doesn't airbrush their pictures. The campus mm-hmm. is really that gorgeous. If you go to the website, um, what you see is actually what you're getting. And I was just – the coach was slick about it because I, <laughs> I visited with the basketball team. And she was really slick about it. Instead of taking the highway, she took me to the back road. And it was in the fall. And anybody who's been in New England in the fall knows that it looks like northern Michigan. Mm-hmm. It is the most spectacular thing you'll ever see. It is gorgeous. So I'm going through these back roads, and I felt like I was home. And I got on campus, and I just met some wonderful women I went to a party that had been thrown by Ethos that weekend and met some, uh, some beautiful sisters, and I was just I, – I, I came home and I said, well, I'm just going to go early decision because I don't think there's another school that can compare to the experience I just had. And I went early decision, so, you know, that's wrong, but um, I, I went early decision and, and I got in. And actually an alum, you know, Wellesley has teas in where they have clubs. And an alum called the house and told me I got in before I got my letter from Wellesley. So it was actually kind of like, oh, well, I would have liked to open the letter. But she was so ecstatic. She said, hey, mm-hmm. I'm a Michigan mm-hmm. girl. To this day, I'm friends with that alum. We lost touch for, you know, when I went to college and lost touch for a while. And uh, now I'm friends with her. She graduated in 85. And um, it's, it's a group of women that I, I mean, I, 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 I thank the ancestors for giving me such a wonderful uh, sisterhood uh, on which I can depend. And um, it's, But, yeah, no, my, my parents, to go back to your question, my parents didn't pressure me, but I think they did little things to encourage me to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that the other thing that's so cool is, like, because I have talked to people, and, like, I told when I talked to Cheryl, like, she went through sports. And, like, even though you did, you, you played the – the basketball was right in your neighborhood. Your dad was a coach. And often for people in the African-American community, the road like to higher education through all that is sports. I have a son who's tall. And when he got ready to look at high schools, we went to one high school, and he's looking for academics, and someone immediately came over and said to him, hey, do you play basketball? You know, And, and it's so, so that right. would have been like, but here – that your parents in their wisdom, I mean, not only, I mean, and that also that you recognize the value of the academics and all like that, that 
it was a harder path, but it was a, a broader, more diverse path for you. And, you know, which didn't like poo-poo, you know, that you liked sports, but it was about that, the academics. It was about that you were able to see the beauty in that setting. And mm-hmm. you were there. I mean, and I think that, that that's really when you come back to, do you ever go back to the neighborhood or go back and talk to young women who are on that track or who are like really engaged and to talk to them about these other factors to look at as you're thinking about higher education? I, I, I did coach um, AAU for a while, um, amateur athletic and basketball. I coached young girls in high school for a while. And, and this was upon my return from Korea. So I was able to, to stress to them the academics. And, and, and I'm a nerd, and I love being a nerd. And <laughs> I, I told them that it's okay to be a nerd. If you're the smartest kid in the classroom, that's okay. You know, it, it's, you don't and, – and I think that's what Wellesley taught me, is that it's okay to be nerdy and be smart and be a woman. Um, and, and so I always would tell them this story uh, when they were – because I had a few women who thought about going to Wellesley that I was coaching, and they were young, so that it wasn't a decision that they could make at the time. But um, I believe one of them ended up uh, attending. And I used to tell them this story that there was an MIT professor, and Massachusetts Institute of Technology professor, and mm-hmm. Wellesley, could, Wellesley women could take courses at MIT. And he, he once told a Wellesley woman, I always know who the Wellesley women are because they always raise their hands. The MIT women in general, and, and this is not all of them, I don't I don't mean to, to stereotype, but they, they would never they would never raise their hands. I mean MIT was is majority male. And he always could tell because the wealthy women had no problem speaking out, no problem speaking up and no problem uh trying to answer the questions. So, you know, I, I, I told them, you know, it's okay to go to an all women's institution. You wanna to go to Spelman, go to Spelman. Being around women who make you strong and make you powerful and make you feel like you can conquer the world, there's nothing wrong with that. And so I, I mentor young girls. I, I still mentor young girls when I have the opportunity to do so. Um, I've tried to continue that. Um, my, my sister mentors young girls. Um, and, and that's just, you know, my upbringing. My, my mother is, is a, a great businesswoman in the city of Detroit. And she has always mentored. So for us, it's been natural. You, you can't go up if you don't pull anybody with you. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And I think that's how my mother raised me. So I, I've always continued to encourage uh, younger women to pursue their dreams with, with no hesitation. Well, you know, I think that that is really, you just gave the perfect response because, I mean, we've all heard, you know, well, in this this why would you want to go to an all-woman school and how we're supposed to do that? But how important it is that here, being amongst other women, where you're learning, that Wesley, Wellesley women raise your hand. And even in this, you know, we're supposed to be post, I don't know what you call it, women's lib thing, where you can go to whatever school. At a MIT, there are still certain internalized sexism where women might not do that, but having been in this nurturing, empowering thing, you go and you raise your hand. And that right there is a really strong sell to 
me, if I was to talk to a young woman, like to, to do that, like you have to be power and it doesn't powerful as a woman. And that's what it sounds like you got. You were empowered to be the best you, to be bold and raise, raise that hand and go out there and ask those questions. So, I mean, I think that in that, this world of co-education that there, there really still is, maybe in some ways even more so, a role for this type of education, the same-sex education where it's all one gender. And, you know, particularly when you talk about women, they say women, many women voted against their own best interest in the past election. And maybe the question would be, do we need to provide more spaces that help women think critically, not only about the current issues of their community, but about the globe? And did you find that that was part of what you got from there? Oh, without question. I mean, it. it I know there, I can't quote them, but there have been studies that, that prove that single-sex education is, is much more, uh, produces much more, um, elite graduates, and I, I think that I was I was challenged so much that I, I didn't change my. It you know it's it's kind of hard to explain. I, I think I did change the way that I thought about the world and the way that I saw it, and 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 how I would come to certain conclusions. And you know I I you know with this past election. You know, it's just unbelievable that, you know, you mentioned it, and I can't get into it because I, I, my blood pressure just skyrockets. <laughs> but, and, and it's not because I went to Hillary's alma mater. Again, there were women at Wellesley mm-hmm. who did not know if they were going to vote for her and didn't vote for her. Um, why? I, I, I don't know if you're a woman. It's, it's pretty self-explanatory because now we're – seeing that everything that she was telling us is coming into fruition as far as women's health care. It was just mind-boggling, uh, the excuses that I heard from women uh, who did not want to vote for her. Um, and it was sexism. Mm-hmm. You can be a woman and be sexist. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think a lot of that also, though, has to do with thinking critically. You can't select, for example, a president on one issue. And, Thank you. you know, you, 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 okay, immigration, he's, he's going to mm-hmm. kick everybody out, but he's also going to take your health insurance. Um, he's also going to raise your taxes. <laughs> you know, what's more important mm-hmm. to you? He, he's going to cut benefits to public schools. There are a slew of other things that you have to consider, and that's not thinking critically. It's the dumbing down of America. Mm-hmm. And it's been consistent. For years, and now we are finally feeling what happens when you stop thinking critically. I think Wellesley taught me to think outside of the box. It taught me that things aren't what they seem they are. There's always a backstory. There's always something else going on, and and so I, I you know, I, I appreciate that. And, and again, it was it was the craziest four years of my life, but it was the best four years of my life because it's given me so much more um, than just academics. It, it gave me experience. Yeah, and I think that I mean, you you really hit on it because I know 
before and since the election. I mean, because we've seen more than once where, you know, like on issues about affirmative action and where you saw women who voted against affirmative action and you want to say, well, look, do you realize that the people who have benefited the most from affirmative action have been women and Mm -hmm. women who who are looking, like you said, at one issue. But we also see, and I think that that's one of the things that when I, I look at, you know, Madeleine Albright, Hillary Rodham Clinton, and now my say, Ellen. I mean, you're, that, you're putting out some pretty badass women, okay? And we have found, and I have worked with people from other countries, that as you lift the consciousness of women, as you empower women, the whole community rises up. We as a, as a, a human race get better. And, I mean, that is the importance of being able to provide a space or providing young women with the ability to, to look beyond one issue, to look to think critically about what's happening, to recognize the intersectionality of you can't talk fair wages and not talk about immigration, and you can't, can't talk about, you know, immigration and not talk about families, and you can't talk, not talk about health care. It's all interconnected, and if we aren't thinking critically, we don't see that, and we make some not the best decisions and mm-hmm. we need to lift women up i'm going to take our first break and i want to come back and talk to you because um, i think we've got a foundation of i mean who you are and i want to talk a little bit more about uh some of your other interests and then get to flint so okay. we will be right back you're listening to collections by michelle brown with my special guest marseille allen and we will be back shortly this episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back with more conversation with today's guest, Marseille Allen, here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I love your name, you know. (laughs) You know, I really, you know, like, you know, because I know that some people, like, there are words that, like, people go like, well, what is that? And to know, well, you know, actually, do you want me to tell you about a city in France, you know? Or I know someone asked me once, how do you spell Renaissance? And they were, like, really surprised, and I was telling them about it. I love your name. Uh, Thank you. I, I think it's like so cute, you know. And when I saw it, I said, I bet it's Marseille. I said, but you know, sometimes when you think it says someone was going to come back and tell you it's different, pronounced differently, and you said, no, you can call me Marseille. And I'm going, yes, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, so um, we were talking about women and, the, and, you know, and I think that women can really be great change agents. It's funny that in doing this show, I find 
you know, I, you know, because I want, you know, you want to be balanced and you want to be diverse. But there are so many women who are really doing things at a level that can make a difference. And mm-hmm. sometimes it doesn't have to be a, you know, people like, well, you don't have to be Oprah rich. You don't have to have a, um, you know, Oprah platform in order to do it. You can do things right where you are. And um, one of the things that I'm going to get into Flint, but I want to talk about the Warriors Trust Fund. I mean, mm-hmm. many people look at our veterans community and feel quick to talk about, you know, like veterans administration hospitals and what they're not doing and, and their health interests. But having lived in the Cass Corridor, particularly under one of our previous governors before Jennifer, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to call any names, but when right. they started, and we found many veterans who became homeless. Mm-hmm. And because they were homeless, um, they got involved in a lot of things. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them uh, narcotics, some of them mental health issues, and some of them then began to get and have co- problems with the law, and they became incarcerated. I mean, when like when we talk about the intersections of things, when you can't find a job, sometimes you end up doing things. And, you know, so, so you can't talk about veterans issues and not talk about the jobless unemployment rates and people who don't want to hire veterans because some people also have those crazy ideas, well, oh, they were a vet, PTSD. And it's like, really? So right. unfortunately, some people do get caught up in the criminal justice system. And we talked about how the the court, the Oakland County Combat Veterans Treatment Court, how it's only one of two in the country. What does that court do and how, from your involvement in that court, did you start Warriors Trust Fund? Well, veterans courts have been popping up across the country since 2008. The first one was in Buffalo, New York, Judge Robert Russell. And... He ran a drug court, but he noticed that a lot of the people coming before him through the drug court were veterans. So he started the country's first veterans treatment court. Uh, I believe they're approximately just under 275 right now. But what distinguishes the Oakland County Combat Veterans Treatment Court from all of those courts is that we only focused, and I should say they continue to focus, on veterans who have suffered from trauma. And so in order to qualify for that court, and and there's only one other court like that as far as I know, and that's in Orange County that handles felonies, Orange County, California. Uh, In order to qualify for those courts, number one, you can't have a previous felony. Number two, your, your felony, your criminal activity, has to be in direct relation to the trauma that you suffered from while in the military. So we, you know, we have not, uh, we, we opened ourselves up to veterans who have post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, uh, traumatic brain injury, TBI. We do accept people who were National Guardsmen, even though they don't get VA benefits, um, as well as people who suffer from military sexual trauma. Because while we know that a lot of women are physically assaulted, or I shouldn't say a lot, but there are women who are physically assaulted in the military that are also sexually assaulted. There are also men who have been sexually assaulted mm-hmm. in the military. So we open ourselves up to anyone who have, has experienced trauma from the first day of boot camp all the way through war. 
And so our court is very small. We don't have a lot of veterans. And uh, that's done purposefully because when I was the probation officer over that court, um, it's, it's very intense. It's extremely intense because you have to really, we, we focus on the treatment first. So we may have an offender who's a combat veteran who has developed an alcohol problem. And that's why, he, you know, he's picked up maybe uh, three drinking while driving. And when you get three, it, it turns into a felony. Well, the first thing we do after he gets out of jail, because jail is mandatory at that point, um, is send him to treatment. And we send him to mental health treatment first because you have to get through. You know, I've, I've had veterans tell me that they drink just to suppress the memories. So mm-hmm. let's work on those memories. Let's work on the mental problem that has followed you throughout your life because of your trauma, because of your combat. And then we get to the alcohol um, but you have to tackle the problem, and I think that's the problem with the criminal justice system is, is in many cases, you know, you can, you can have a drug court, but you've got to tackle the problems beyond that. And luckily, we do have the VA that offers therapy, but when that therapy is not enough, uh, we have partnerships with community organizations where we, you know, we may have to send a veteran to, uh, because the VA bed space is full, may have to send the veteran to uh, an inpatient facility that usually keeps one to two beds open for emergency purposes anyway. Um, we, we, and, and so when I got promoted through the Department of Corrections, I was able to take on, uh, because I wasn't directly supervising these veterans, I was able to take on the presidency of the Warriors Trust Fund, which was an organization that I had helped start. And so as president, what, we, what, what, what our organization does is we cover uh, transportation, uh, we cover uh, any type of treatment that's not covered by the VA. Uh, we also um, offer yoga classes. So mm. uh, in, in our combat court in, in Pontiac, um, after court, they go to yoga right in the courthouse. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. it's funny, we, we just had a graduation. One of our vets uh, graduated, and the judge joked around that they, yeah, they used to like coming to see her. Now they come to court just so they can go to yoga. And, and they were, they were, um, they were adamantly against it. You know, you you know, right now we only have men, but you know, you've got these hard men who, you know, are you know, they're just yeah, I'm not I'm not getting on the floor and stretching and all. You know, that's just and now they love it, and 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 they realize yoga has been proven to reduce the the effects of of post traumatic stress disorder. So, you know, that was. That's, that's one of the things that we do, and we're, we're, uh, we graciously accepted um, grants from the Oakland County Bar Foundation. Uh, we have a golf outing every September 11th. We have one this year, so if people want to go to our website, warriorstrustfund.org, they'll be able to keep up with that. And um, But we, we, we raise funds to, to make sure that our veterans uh, can get the things that they need so that they don't come back into the system. Um, we, we are, we're lucky to have been able to expand to the veterans in the 45th District Court of Oak Park, uh, Michigan. So we're, we're expanding to, to help all veterans as, as much as we possibly can outside of, of the, the, the one combat court. But we're, we're, right now we're staying in Oakland County, Michigan, uh, so, so we're, we're offering those services to veterans there. You know, that is that is really wonderful. I mean, I can't recall because I lived in the Cascoder, and I know that there was a a guy I was sitting in front of a restaurant, 
And we were sitting there, and this guy came, you know, and he had, uh, you know, stereotypical homeless look. And um, he sort of, like, tottered up there. And the police were, there were some police there who immediately were going to, like, you know, get out of here or we're going to, you know, take you in, you know, and if you go in this time, you know, and it was like, and at a certain point, like some of us like, you know, he's not bothering us. And he started to tell his story. And mm-hmm. a lot of it you could, you, you recognize was from the trauma he had done. And now here he was, he was out here. And what some people saw as maybe, and I didn't think it as aggressive, but some people found it as threatening. His appearance and all that had put him in trouble with the criminal justice and to have a place to where, like you were saying, how you looked at, you know, that it was part of what got them into this, this system had to do with a past trauma to recognize that. That is like, you wonder, you're in Oakland County, but how many vets are out there that maybe that's getting missed? And to not say, you know, like, and to get them into something that's yoga, because sometimes we have to find ways to sort of cope and deal with our demons, and yoga can help you, you know, help you, like, right. pull it back together. And and it's like a very, not only dealing with the practical, but dealing with something more on a holistic level. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yes. I think I think that that is, that is, um, that is really a great program. And like I said, I didn't know that you did that. I knew about, I had read about the Flint, and I'm like, Wow, look at that. And and I have friends who are veterans who have tried to address some of the other issues that they saw that they weren't getting help with through forming nonprofits. And I have the one um, I put you in touch with, um, one of my go-to veterans people who was a veteran who suffered some things because of the trauma she had received and then was able to eventually end up working back for the veterans and to mm-hmm. have that voice to be able to sit down and talk to people. So, I mean, um, they give service. We should be there to help them. And I applaud you and the Warrior Trust Fund for doing it. But, you know, that's part of you. That's part of you and and your service to the community. And so, Flint, you were telling me that, you know, you had your best friend was from Flint. You had moved to Flint before it all hit uh, the fan. And and I know people, and I mean, I certainly understand it. I have a friend whose mother was in Flint. She was from Texas. And when it hit the fan, she came up and she said, Mom, you've been wanting to stay here forever, but you are moving now. But you didn't. And not only did you do that, that you you went to, to giving this water, and I mean, a lot of people, water is a basic human right. We talk about foreign countries and, and talking about people who go there to make sure that people have water. And here, right here in the good old U.S. of, of A, in the Great Lakes State, you have Flint. When mm-hmm. you realized what was going down and you had just moved there, what was your first reaction? You know, I'll be honest with you, I was in shock. I mean, I, I can, I, I've done a lot of interviews, and I always have to read articles that were done on me and, and interviews that I gave during the time to remember because I think that it was li- it's literally like all a blur. It's, it's unfathomable that this, something like this would happen. I, I, I remember telling someone that this is the greatest man-made human tragedy this country has ever experienced. 
And I don't think people understand the gravity of it. They still don't. I don't remember feeling anything. I remember going into survival mode. And my best friend, her family went out. We went out, um, I want to say it was January 16th. And we distributed distributed about 3,400 bottles of water. Um, I wanted to figure out how I could help. So on the next day, and this is in 2016, on the next day, I started the GoFundMe page. And I literally was just, okay, I knew how much she paid for two um, pallets of water was about 950 some odd dollars. And so I set the goal for 1000 And I had 1000 in a couple hours. I'm like, okay, let me raise it again. And it just kept going up and up and up because it was so quick. And GoFundMe actually contacted me and said, hey, do you need some help? Because <laughs> this is moving really mm-hmm. fast and we want to help you. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, because I've never done crowdfunding before. I had never even thought about doing GoFundMe. I've given to campaigns before, but never thought I would be in a position where I needed to use one. So, you know, I'll be honest with you. As far as feeling, I don't remember how I felt. I, I just remember feeling like, okay, what am I going to do? What's my next step? How am I going to help this community? Because I'm, I'm here now. You know, mm-hmm. um, I did eventually end up moving, but I'm really, I'm literally right in the next town. Um, but at the time it was, what am I going to do to help? It, it, and you know, it wasn't, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, you know, really, I mean, because, and it, and being there at ground zero and recognizing like people are like, oh, well, they are drinking bottled. It's not just about drinking bottled water. I mean, there were people who could not, who could not bathe, who could not, you know, nothing you could, everything, if you stop and think about everything that you use water for, you know, ten well, yeah, and it, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it gets bigger than that. I mean, I don't, I don't think people understand and, and when you're drinking lead and copper, okay, mm-hmm. if you're pregnant, you're not going to be pregnant for long. There mm-hmm. were a lot of women who lost their babies, unborn children, mm-hmm. a lot. Um, when we went out to deliver water one time, I remember it, it was maybe 10 degrees outside. Um, we would go down the street screaming water so that people mm-hmm. would feel comfortable to open their doors. And from down the block, we saw these two figures coming, and as they got closer, we realized one was an older teenager boy, teenage boy, and one was a smaller boy. They didn't have any coats on. And so um, at the time, I was still a probation officer. I was, I was working in, in uh, Lansing at the time as a lead agent, so I wasn't supervising, but, you know, I had other probation officers with me. And we were, you know, we, we carry stuff in our car, so... Mm-hmm. in our cars. So we somebody went and got a blanket. My mom went and got a blanket. Somebody had an extra coat, one of their kids' coats in the car, and we bundled up the baby. And I tried to talk to the younger boy, and he just looked at me. I looked at his, his older brother, probably about 16, 17, and I said, what's wrong with him? He doesn't speak. And immediately, I didn't, I didn't have to ask why. He said, but you know, and I kind of, I kind of paused, and I kind of just looked at him, and I was, you know, of course, fighting tears because I was just, I mean, not tears of sadness, I was furious, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, he said, "Yeah, we drank the water for two years, he just stopped talking." 
And so I don't think people get it. It isn't about, mm-hmm. oh, I can't bathe. No, I, I have. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still using creams. I'm still taking medication for my skin. It's not, that's, but that's the small part. You have people dying from this. You have kids who are literally neurologically damaged from this water. And lead poisoning is generational. A researcher mm-hmm. from Michigan State has proven that. So this isn't, oh, this will be over in 10 years. We'll just have to deal with this one generation of kids. No, the kids that are here that have lead poisoning are going to have children who are going to have lead poisoning. And those kids are going to have children that are going to have lead poisoning. So because somebody thought it was more important to look at an Excel spreadsheet or an access document and figure out their budget, rather than looking at the faces of the children, you, they have literally destroyed generations of babies. You know, that's, so the, I, thing, I, that's mm-hmm. the thing that, that sort of gets me because when you hear people like, oh, well, they'll just give them some water, oh, they'll clean up and they'll turn it back on, but they don't recognize what you just said. This is generational. So even if you were to miraculously able to change every pipe and make it good, the damage is done. Yes, it's done. It's done. And, and that's not in the meat. The, the, the part about it being multi-generational and the children having poisoning and the, and the mothers losing their unborn babies and kids being neurologically damaged for life, that part doesn't hit the news. People only talk about pipes. Mm-hmm. You can replace the pipes, give every resident of Flint a new water system, and it still won't matter. The damage is done. It's done. And you, mm-hmm. The, the damage is done. And you know, and there, and there, and like you said, they've been happening for for generations. And people already, there were people who were right there. It didn't matter if you took them a water filter because they were getting their water from the garden hose. You know, there are people who didn't have water on and who were using whatever. And the damage is done. And how do you, you know? It is so important. I think that one of the things I thought, too, was that, that you went out and you were in the neighborhood, and I love that your mother was with you. I'm just going to tell you, having done community work and, and to have your mother be there with you, I mean, it, it gives you that, that special kind of glow. But the fact that you went in there and you shouted, water, and they knew you were there about water, and you recognized that some people, I think you, I was reading one text, she said you called it dumping that if they had a lot of children or they were elderly, that you gave them extra water because you knew. I mean, you hear stories about where some people all their days were spent going from place to place to place to place to get water. But you were right there not doing it on a, a, a pencil pushing or saying, come here, come there. You were right there in the community giving it to them and also that you brought in the conversation. You started to give them oranges because you can't fix it, but there are some things that you can do to decrease some of the impact of lead right. poisoning. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, so, we, um, we, 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 we would buy, when I would pick up water at, um, from a warehouse, I would also pick up pallets of oranges. And I read, uh, I want to say two FDA studies, I believe it was the FDA that, you know, there was the big lead poisoning issues back in the 80s. They did two studies. One was the orange rinds, and there's a chemical in the orange rinds that helps um, 
pull out the leg out of the out of the bones out of the system and then they did another study on how you extract that um how do you how do you excrete it so you you do it through urine and, and if it would be damaging and, and it's not um so we would give out bags of oranges we also would get we would um i work i, I now work full-time union i'm, I'm on union leave for uaw local 6000 with the largest union in the country uh largest mm-hmm. local in the country and they were with me uh, the whole time and what we did was we would copy some of the informational material that was on the internet because we knew the people couldn't find it or they didn't have access to the internet I mean you know the poverty level in Flint 47 percent you know mm-hmm, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not it's not a wealthy city and so we did whatever we could uh, to help people um, we worked with Thrive Market as an online organic market and we handed out uh, they gave everyone a one-year membership and $100 worth of free groceries. So we handed out these coupons along with water. And we we uh, would get baby wipes because people didn't want to bathe their children. And, and we would get baby wipes to the elderly um, so that they didn't have to bathe. I remember we, we had to fight a woman one time, an older woman. We had to literally force ourselves in our house because she would she would only take two cases of water and that's because mm. the government would only give her two cases of water when she called and she slammed the door on one of my volunteers after they gave her like five cases so like marseille you have to come back you have to come back i'm banging on the door and she opens the door i said ma'am just let me in let me talk to you and see oh fine you know come in and um i said i understand that when you call the United Way, you only get two cases of water. We're not the United Way. We're the UAW. And I'm giving you as much water as I feel you need right now, and then I'll come back, and here's my card. I gave her my business card and with my personal cell phone on it, and we, I think we gave her 30 cases. I'm sure, mm. you, know, you know, she thought we were crazy, but then she still kicked us out because she didn't want us to give her any more. You know, I mean, so we wanted to, we, we would run into the elderly, we would run into families with multiple children, and we would, like you said, we would dump, that's what we call it, we would dump, and we would dump as many cases of water as, as they needed for, you know, as long as they could get, you know, until they could get more. Um, and we went out as often as possible. We went to various neighborhoods. Um, it, it, it was, it was. I still have nightmares about it, you mm-hmm. know, but that's, that's the least of, of the issues because I, I, I still see the faces of the, the kids that um, you could tell they were scared and they mm-hmm. see you. And, and I remember this young girl jumped in my arms and she said, you're an angel. She was like four years old. When I, you know, I'm mm-hmm. not used to, I don't have any kids. So I'm not used to, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the mean aunt that spoils the kids and then gives them back. <laughs> Uh-huh. And she, uh-huh. you know, we're out going door to door and we're delivering water to this lady. And we thought the house was abandoned. That's how poor uh-huh. of a condition it was in. And um, But we saw kids' toys that looked like they had been recently used. So somebody ended up knocking on the door and sure enough, someone was in there. And she had multiple children. She had about three kids and then she was taking care of her brother's kids. And so we, you know, of course, did a dump. And, um, but the little girl, she's, you know, this... I mean, she's maybe four years old, and she jumped up in my arms, literally. And I was like, I didn't have any other choice but to, you know, pick her up. And she's like, "You're an angel, thank you." And you know, it. I didn't think of. I didn't think 
of the impact that I was having until that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because to me, it was something that I was supposed to do. It was something that we as the UAW, having a stronghold here in mm-hmm. Flint and, and being of the working class, that's something that we are supposed to do. So when that happened to me, it was like, oh, I got it. I had done interviews. I had been followed by cameras. I had been, you know, standing next to the governor at, at the, the food bank sorting food. And I had done all of that. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized that, okay. And, you know, and in keeping in the tradition of your, of your tradition from college, do you know that little girl, you know, later on might be the one who is doing the same thing or might be the right. one who is leading the charge and finding a solution for this aging infrastructure or something to help people with lead. So, I mean, it's like you plant these seeds and you never know, but that our kids are our hope. And then seeing that, you know, hope, if you don't have hope, it's not going to get better. Yeah. But, from having seen this, and I'm going to tell you, I did a show on Flint, and I was talking about Flint, um, and I had some people call in. One was from Chicago, one was from New York, and they were saying, you know, well, Flint is getting all the attention now, but you know that there are cities, aging urban areas across the country where it's the same situation, and our kids are being poisoned, our elders are being poisoned, and nobody's talking about it. But right now, and, and it was almost like, yeah, Flint is bad, but you know, what about the rest of us? Are there lessons from Flint? Or are there conversations that you're finding yourself being engaged in that will help these other, raise awareness for these other aging areas and these other kids across this country who are facing this aging infrastructure, lead poisoning, and really this bottom line economics where, you know, people be damned, we've balanced the budget. I would say the first thing people need to do is keep track of the narrative. Don't let anyone else dictate your narrative. Um, Community activism has to be recorded. And if you don't, you know, the, the, all of this stems from the emergency manager. The, the people mm-hmm. of Michigan voted down the legislation that would implement emergency managers, which, mind you, were only implemented in majority, minority cities, mm-hmm. even though other cities needed them. <laughs> um, and so, so the, 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 the community activism started there. And the emergency management situation in Flint led to this poisoning. So it can't be a what about us. It's, okay, let's look at them, see what they did, and let's do it here. Because the the, the one thing I will say about Flint residents is they are resilient. Mm -hmm. Coming out of the UAW and the community service and the activism of the 30s and the 40s here in Flint, Flint's a strong town, mm-hmm. and it's bred strong people. And mm-hmm. so while we couldn't make this, the decisions that were happening in Lansing, uh, they, the, the, the legislators got a hell of a fight. 
And what Flint did was it, 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 it opened up the floodgates of the other stories of other cities. Now we're hearing about lead in the, the schools in Chicago, and people are finally acknowledging that the, the mining is destroying Navajo lands and the lakes and the rivers are red from the mining in Navajo country. You know, people are actually starting to acknowledge that. People are starting to acknowledge what they're, what, what gov- the government is doing to Native Americans. And, you know, you've got uh, the people from Standing Rock coming to Flint and the people from Flint going to Standing Rock. I mean, it's not ever going to be, what about us? It's got to be, this is about us. And so for me, having been part of this crisis and meeting the people that I've met, I mean, I'm I'm going to speak at the University of Chicago next Monday, and I'm going with Dr. Kent Key from Michigan State. And and Kent, Dr. Key has been working on maintaining the narrative um, along with um, several other people. And and I, I think that that's important. If you're going to be a community activist, you have to maintain your negative, your, your narrative. Letitia Fowler out of uh, Michigan State in Lansing um, uh, teaches that. And, and she collected stories uh, from the people of Flint so that we could maintain the, so that we had control over the narrative. You can't let the government control your narrative mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. then, oh, that never happened. Oh, they were fine with the change. Just like, you know, um, was it, was it the, 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 the um, press representative for, the, for uh, our president said that we were happy in the field? Yeah, I'll tell you, a lot of that is in one ear, out the other, because it's just so unbelievably ignorant. But <laughs> I, I can't even remember what he said, but you, you can't let the government change your narrative. Mm-hmm. Oh no! It was it was okay. Dr. Ben Carson. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Uh-huh. It, yeah, thank it, you. You know, so uh-huh. it, it, right. So it, for for us, you know, for, for people across the country, it can't be. Well, what about us? Flint is getting all the t- attention, but the fact that this happened in Flint is fortunate for other communities that were not getting the attention because now the attention is really on, okay, what are we going to do about our aging infrastructure across the country? Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think that it was, a, you know, it's, it, it can't be a blessing in disguise, but it definitely was beneficial for other communities who now can say, you know what, we don't want to happen here the same that happened in Flint. Mm-hmm. And, okay, well, and gonna... so activists here are, are kind of setting the standard, I believe, and the groundwork mm-hmm. for activists across the country. It's not about what about us. It's about this is about us. This is about everybody. And we have to come together as a nation um, and stand up for each other. Okay, with that, we're going to take our second break here. And um, if you're just joining us, we are talking with Marseille Allen, um, a Michigan original, (laughs) a Michigan original and someone committed to community. And we'll be right back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, 
iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. More conversation with Marseille Allen. You know, I remember I love music from all generations, and Patti Smith had this song. It was a People Have the Power. And I was listening to as you were talking about it, and it is. Every community, you have to know your community. You have to start to do it, and um, it's right there where you're at. I mean, the fact that somebody knew that in that house there were children and people who were living there, and you guys saw the toys and you knew, but we have to start to look out for, empower, and set our line in the sand on what is acceptable for our community and what we care about and what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And that is is a lot of, and I, and I like that you're going around and you're talking about it. And like you said, this really flint to me, ripped a Band-Aid off of a bigger problem. And how we go in and resolve it is going to be different. It's going to be different. There's, it's not just going to be like your way. There's going to be this way, that way, and the other. And I think in part, when I got those calls and the people were going like, well, it's happening here, or well, what about us? And I, part of me wanted to turn around and say, what about you? You know, what about you? What are you doing? You know, are you sitting quietly and not going out to vote and or protesting against when these things happening? Are you not thinking about your neighborhood? Are you not raising the alarms about these and fighting it? So as you move forward, um, I know you. You are not going to say, okay, Flint done, next. You know, um, you still have that commitment to that city, to those residents, but you still have what you've always had, that fire in your belly for community service. Mm-hmm. What do you see? How do you see that the intersections that have influenced your life have impacted this work that you're doing, and how's it going to inter- impact what you do in the future? <laughs> you know, I, I was uh, talking to a friend the other day in, <clears throat> in New York, and um, I, I think that I will always just want to give. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been very blessed to have two very loving parents. I have a, my, my family is healthy. And um, I've had some wonderful people in my life that have guided me, um, served as mentors. I, I've been very blessed. And so for me, it doesn't matter what I do. I don't get as much satisfaction out of it if I'm not giving to mm-hmm. someone, if I'm not giving back. And if you think about it, I, I've said this several times, Wellesley's motto, not to be served, but to serve. If everyone actually lived by that motto, <clears throat> if you think about it, down to, you know, micro level, we would have no poverty. Mm-hmm. We would have no war. Religions would come together instead of fight each other. Races would be um, friends, brothers, sisters, instead of fighting each other, no matter what color 
we were, no matter what our physical features, um, if we only focused on serving each other. And I, I've, you know, after this crisis, I've told people that, you know, I'm, 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 I'm very happy to just get a farm, two horses, a couple of chickens, <laughs> and, 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 and just be at peace. I don't want to be in the spotlight. I don't want to do all of that. I just want to be able to give back to my community that gave so much to me. And I, and I think, you know, no matter what I do in life, no matter where I am, that's what I will always do. I will always serve because I feel like if I can serve someone, that may save someone's life. Mm. It may make someone something as, do something as little as smile. Um, but it gives me great satisfaction to know that I'm helping someone else. And, mm. and I really wish to be an example to other people. Um, it, it's a level of selflessness, I think, we all wish to accomplish. And some of us get there, some of us don't. I hope to be there one day. Um, so, you know, to be quite blunt, I, I, don't, I don't know where I'm going to be. I know that I'm mm-hmm. what I'm always going to do, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. I never... I never know where God will take me. I'm, I'm just along for the ride. But I know while I'm on that ride, I'm going to do my best to make my society and my community better. And, you know, I think that I, I, I totally get that because there are things. I mean, I can think back a couple of generations to, like, like my grandmother and how she had that, that tradition of giving, and my mother did. And, you know, and it's sort of like, well, Wherever you land, it's not going to be like your job is done. It might just be a new job. But but to do that, and I think that to walk in that truth, like I said, that four-year-old child, you don't know what it is. And I often tell people, you don't have to be that biological parent, but as you walk in your truth and a child sees that, it implants that seed for them to do it. And as we all hopefully evolve to be that that person, you know, that person mm-hmm. who is, is more about it, our whole community will get better. So, I mean, and, and I see it again and again where, where I'll see someone and they'll go like, well, you know, there was somebody and I looked at them and I said, you know, I can do that. Even if when the world is, is going as my grandmother would say, the hell in a handbasket, you can see light and, and, you, and you can do it, you know, and you can do it. So, and I don't think that, you know, that Flint is over. I know that many people say, oh, well, they're taking these people to court and they're, they're trying these and everything. And some people are going to say, okay, well, next chapter, it's not over. Like as you alluded to, a lot of these kids who have been, been being, poisoned by lead, and you're going to see it generation to generation to generation. If someone were to contact you or want to contact you or want to know what can we do to make sure that when there's another headline that the people of Flint aren't forgotten, what should they do? You know, I I believe in um, now in my current position, I'm a legislative liaison, and, and I have seen, and, and, and even with this presidential administration, um, the power of the people. And I would say call your legislators. 
um, because there there is a there is a chance that this can happen in another city because mm-hmm. we are now um, being represented by people who are not putting our best interest uh, first um, and and so I would I would say keep the pressure up on your legislators particularly those who sit on the committees that impact the budget. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but they need to hear uh, from the people. I've seen it work at the federal level, and now that I'm in state politics, I've seen it work at the state level where we have been able to put on hold, quote-unquote, legislation that was not good for the people because of the number of calls that the legislators received. I, I think staying in touch with your politicians, letting, they need to know you on a first-name basis because what I think people forget is that these people who we elect work for us. Mm. And we need to remind them of that every day. So whether it's at the state level, the city level, the county level, the federal level, remind these legislators that they work for you. If you pay taxes, these legislators work for you. And I think that's how you prevent another Flint. I think that's how Flint continues to thrive, is that we, we, we look, Flint, Flint residents are strong, and, and they are handling their business. They are in the faces of the legislators. They are in the faces of the people who are making these decisions. The activists are out there, and I, and I would like to see that repeated in other cities. Activism is key to making mm-hmm. change. And you don't have to be... You know, you don't have to participate in a march and hold a sign to be an activist. Being an activist can be making a call, sending an email to your legislator. It could go. It could be going to your your local community center, and and mentoring. There's all types of levels of activism. But to prevent another Flint, um, I think our legislators need to remember who they work for, and need to make their decisions accordingly. Um, and and that's where we went wrong here in Michigan is that the legislators and, and our governor, they forgot that they work for the people. And um, big business was what they were considering and, and, and not the little folks. So um, that's what I would encourage people to do is, is just remind your legislators uh, who pays their bills. Mm-hmm. Well, Marce, I want to tell you, I mean, you truly are a living example particularly now that women are the majority, sisters, you are the majority, that women can make a meaningful contribution to the world, that women can be transformative. Um, I thank you for all you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And um, I think that that model, not to be served but to serve, and it doesn't mean that you have to be a doormat and be walked over. That's not what service is, you know. That's not what service is. Service is about giving back to your community. Um, I thank you for all you're doing. I'm, you know, you've got me for life. We'll be in touch. And, um, you know, really, I'm already, I've already got things in mind of people who you should know and, and who should know you. you <laughs> well, know? I appreciate you, that. That would be great. You know, people who should know you. But I want to thank you. I want to thank you for taking the time to um, – talk to us today. Um, I already told you that come November, I'll probably want to circle back and talk to you more about, I usually have a panel of people who work with veterans to talk about that and where they are and how we can support our veterans. Yeah, and of course. 
and not and not not look at them and wonder, oh, you know, forget all the negative. This is a resource, and how do we bring them back in? But again, I want to thank you. Thank you for being with us. I want to thank tonight's guest, Marseille Allen, and you, our listening audience. You can listen to the show each week by following Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitchers, or SoundCloud. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and make sure that you never miss an episode. That's all for today. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Good night. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.